Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to the Real Leaders Podcast. As you know, I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host. And Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Now, before we jump in, I'm going to give you my normal ask. If you like this podcast, go through the extra steps and rate this podcast on iTunes. I sure appreciate it. Today, we're joined by Eric Friedenwald Fishman. He is the founder and creative director of the Metropolitan Group. Thanks for being with us, Eric. Oh, thanks for having me. The way we start every Real Leaders podcast is to ask our guests to give us their three-minute life story. So over to you for that. My three-minute life story. I was born into a family of social activists. I was born when my folks were in college, and it was the 60s. So it was the anti-Vietnam movement, the women's movement, the labor movement, etc. And I grew up just seeing that if something was wrong in the world, if the status quo was hurting people, you could do something about it. And as a student, I discovered that I was not the best athlete. I was not the best singer. I was not the best English or science student. But I was the kid who could hear that there were a lot of other people with a concern that wasn't being addressed and was unjust and could see a solution if we all got our act together and focused and pushed for a change. And that became really the story of my life. In college, the big issue was divestment from South Africa. Myself and a bunch of fellow students got together and decided no school in the region had done so, and we wanted ours to be the first. We put together a campaign, not knowing it was a campaign. We raised some money and hired art students and English students to make sure we had great messages and powerful graphics. And we won that, that effort after about a year's worth of work and had a blast doing it. And several of us, after we graduated from college, started a company to do that same thing because we didn't know any better. And the fact that we didn't have business degrees and the fact that we had no idea what we were doing and the fact that at the time businesses didn't do social change campaigns as their only business, we didn't know any of that. So we did it. And that was 28 years ago. And we're having a blast. So Eric, you started this company, the Metropolitan Group. Tell us a little bit about what the Metropolitan Group does. You know, in essence, we do two things. About half of our work is directly impacting social change. So we design and manage campaigns to change policies, change attitudes, change behaviors. So getting people to quit smoking, passing more funding for education, increasing civil rights enforcement, etc. And the other half of what we do is we help social change organizations, nonprofits, governments, and foundations increase their capacity to drive social change by having better strategies, better messaging, and better organizational structures and cultures. You talked about your work in college, but it sounds like this social change impetus started a lot earlier than college. What's your earliest memory of you being a change agent? So my earliest memory would probably be elementary school. The food sucked, which is, I'm sure, true everywhere. <laughs> there were some minor things that were okay, and then the district switched from the lunch ladies who cooked at your school to a contract with some big corporation that has centralized kitchen for many, many districts in the area. And the food became horrible and inedible. And I must have been a second or third grader and everyone was complaining. And I remember seeing my parents doing petitions and protests. And I had an idea that we would do a petition and a protest. And that kind of got out of hand. And eventually as a third or a fourth grader, I was in a meeting with the superintendent of the school district and the regional manager for the Saga Corporation, which is was a subsidiary of another large corporation. And we did manage to get some changes, not epic, but uh, you know, we did get pizza back and a few other things, which now, from a wellness and public health perspective, was probably a bad thing, but it was a heroic effort uh, at the time. 
So you weren't good at sports. Did that at least get you to be in the popular group in elementary school? <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny. I, in elementary and middle school, don't know that I would say I was in the popular group, but I also was not in the popular group. I kind of was one of those people that could connect with kids in many different groups. I had friends who were athletes. I had friends who were the rebel artists. I had friends of every different subset in the school and felt pretty comfortable navigating through those different groups. Definitely in high school when the district had a budget crisis and violated their own process on choosing what schools to close and closed our high school and I helped organize a series of boycotts and protests and was a part of an organizing group that sued the district, et cetera, that suddenly did catapult me into the kind of more formalized student leadership, what you might call popular group. But I was always someone who somehow just luckily had friends in all the different groups and didn't feel connected to any one clique. A lot of kids grow up and when their parents are really dedicated to something, they end up resisting it. And, and just sort of charting a totally different path. And I wonder if you had any of that as a kid. I mean, it really sounds like you continued the social activism in which you were brought up. Was there ever a moment where you doubted that path? So the path itself, no. I have never had one moment of doubt that this is the, the calling that I have in my life. And I feel very, very blessed that two of my mentors are my mom and my dad and mm -hmm. two of my heroes on my mom and my dad. That being said, I did have a huge symbolic rebellion, which is my parents, when I was little, were, were hippies. You know, we, we owned a home and they were very responsible parents and they bristle at the word because they think it means people who completely dropped out of society. They were social activists and organizers and took great care of my brother and I. But we had long hair and drove a VW van with tie-dyed curtains and we looked pretty darn radical and their politics were pretty darn radical. And... I, you know, I don't know, fifth grade or sixth grade, wrote my grandparents and told them what I wanted for my birthday was a suit and a tie. <laughs> and I started wearing a suit and a tie to school every day. Wow. And actually, friends of my parents would say, what's going on with your kid? He's so straight. He's like a part of the capitalist -like thing. He's wearing a suit. So my rebellion was I insisted on wearing a suit. Wow, that's a great story. When I look at the Metropolitan Group, the company that you've built for 28 years, number one, I don't talk to a lot of founders that have been involved in growing a company for 28 years because our culture of business has shifted so much. But number two, as I hear you talk about your history, you're still sort of navigating that line between activism and capitalism. What I do know about your company is that it's a real company with real employees and you try to create sustainable lives for you and your employees. How have you walked that line? So I think there's a false dichotomy from a standpoint of you're either a successful, growing, profitable business, or you're socially responsible. I think that's a completely false dichotomy. And I think fortunately, uh, there's a lot of movements now that are pushing in that direction. Our company was one of the early certified B Corps. We're also one of the early companies that changed our corporate status uh, in terms of our legal structure to being a benefit company. Uh, so we are able to manage our company looking at multiple bottom lines and having our goal being not to maximize return for shareholders as the only goal, but to provide a fair return for stakeholders, which means our shareholders do well, our employees do really well, our communities do really, really well. So yes, we make a lot of choices in terms of benefits and compensation and work-life balance that are really in the interest of our employees having great, great lives. 
We make many choices about who our clients are that focus our work on organizations that are driving social change. And we have also been a very successful, profitable company because we are well-managed and we have an incredible team. And compared to many in the communication industry, which you would roughly put us in, even though we're pretty odd in terms of the work we do and the niche we're in, our tenure is incredible. We attract top choice employees in virtually every search and people stay with us for a very, very long time. And so from that standpoint, those extra investments actually make great business sense and become very profitable. I appreciate that. I think that's very, very helpful, especially now in our political climate. There are a lot of activist millennials, young people, people coming out of school that really, really have ambitions along the lines of social activism or implementing change in the world. And I think one of the challenges for these young people is trying to create a sustainable life where they can actually have food and shelter. And in a lot mm -hmm. of our cities, that's getting really, really difficult. What mm -hmm. advice do you give those young people? So to be very honest, I, in recent days, have not had many millennials coming to me and saying, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to have food and shelter, and can you advise me? So this is more of a hypothetical. Okay, great. But what, what I would say is, you know, one, really focus on what is work that you want to do that connects with the things that you care about most in terms of your values. Because there are jobs out there where you can do that. And we now live in a society where to be entrepreneurial, to create your own thing, the cost of entry has actually gone down. Information technology, mobile workplace, et cetera, has made that infinitely more doable. And so you can also create your own idea and go for it. The other thing that I would say is it's not about the what's that individual need to do. It's we as a society have some things that we're going to have to address. We've got to deal with the cost of higher education and student debt and how we have defunded public investment and put that on the backs of young people. That's not setting us up to have a generation that has a bright and shining future that will benefit all of us because they can take risks and be innovative. We have to deal with housing affordability. We have a few cities that have done it. Most have not. We need young people starting in their careers to be able to live a decent life in proximity to work because that's how you have vibrant, healthy cities. And that's good for business and good, good for the economy. So policy really matters. And that matters at a local level. That matters at a state level. And yes, it matters at a federal level. And I, for one, am unwilling to say because of the outcome of any particular election, we're going to let go and give up on that. Those of us who have ended up in our 50s have an obligation to not only do great work in our companies and to make money and give money to charity, et cetera, we have an obligation to be advocates for public policy that serves young people and creates better opportunity. And I, I'm really proud that a bunch of my colleagues recently worked with a little victory in Oregon, and we've restored funding for every single uh, sixth grader in Oregon, regardless of their zip code or their family's wealth, to be able to have immersive outdoor education, which is a transformative experience. That's one small step. We need many more. Yeah, that's a great program in Oregon. And I didn't mention, should have, that Metropolitan Group is headquartered in Portland, Oregon, and you have other offices now around the world. Where are your other offices? We're in D.C., we're in San Francisco, we're in Chicago, and we are coming up on opening an office in Mexico City. Great. Eric, give me a couple over the last 28 years, just a couple projects that Metropolitan Group did that you felt were particularly impactful in the way you 
wanted them to be when you first created this business? There are so, so many projects and you, you don't like to pick favorites. A few that just really, really resonate. We uh, were able to collaborate with a group of just passionate scientists around the issue of food security who had identified ways of fixing nitrogen in soil in sub-Saharan Africa using indigenous tree species that could equal or outperform chemical fertilizer and could actually be a sustainable and affordable way of radically increasing food security and incomes for smallholder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. Getting that science technology from the academic and international development conferences and actually translated and financed to be able to get into the hands of farmers was an incredible experience and a, a project that really, really did what we, we wanted to see it do. Uh, work that we've done uh, on anti-tobacco to really, really reduce smoking rates and to have people, particularly people in communities that are lower socioeconomic income where there's a disparity and a higher focus of tobacco marketing to be able to see the impact of smart campaigns to bring that down has been incredibly meaningful. Being able to be partners and, and colleagues with advocates for school-based healthcare and really creating an access point for the most vulnerable, for young people who did not have access to good healthcare by putting doctor's offices and clinics in schools and turning that into a normative practice. There was great leadership uh, from the foundation community with W.K. Kellogg leading the way, incredible advocates across the country, and getting to collaborate and work on that to where that's more of a normative practice was incredibly rewarding. There, there are just so many great projects. Weirdest project ever, and uh, long ago, one of the largest voluntary migrations in human history uh, is the Oregon Trail uh, in the 1840s. And the six states that the trail went through were looking for an organization to help connect people with that history. Uh, and we got engaged to put on a wagon train reenactment and had 200,000 people walk or ride across the trail and a couple million people come to evening and weekend programs along the trail. Craziest thing we ever did. That's fantastic. I love that. So I was looking at your site today before our conversation and saw that Black Lives Matter is featured there. Mm-hmm. What's that project? That's not a project. If you if you look at our site, you'll see that each tile has a different color. And there's tiles that are about our work. And there's also tiles about news and tiles that we call ideas about what we're thinking about. And we so we often on our site will identify if there's things happening in the community that we think are important and that are relevant for what we stand for. Uh, we highlight them. And with um, some of the incidents that have been happening and the rhetoric and language uh, in this country uh, that it really has elevated fear of other people and frankly has been quite racist and in particularly the way that the black community has been targeted was of great concern for us. And so we posted uh, and reposted information and in particular some really powerful recommendations about what can people actually do in their local communities if they're going to make that more than a hashtag and into the kinds of policies and practices they want to put into their communities to really make sure every life matters, and particularly in this instance, black lives. Okay. Eric, have you ever had to tone down your own convictions on certain issues to maintain your role as the leader of this company? 
So I, I think the easy answer there is no, but one thing you will probably notice is I haven't made a single reference in this conversation to a political party or to a candidate or an elected official, and you'll see nothing on our website that, that does because we are actually a nonpartisan organization. We don't tone anything down about our views on issues. We are absolutely an organization that believes in reproductive health and rights. We are absolutely an organization that believes that we must address climate change as a fundamental economic and environmental issue of our time. And the list can go on. And so we are an issue-focused organization, and we do not tone down our perspective or stand on issues. We feel very comfortable right now saying that the issue of racism and racial bias is writ large in our society. That's not new. That isn't different. But right now, it is being played out in ways that really need to be addressed, and there needs to be a counter-narrative for them. So we're not shy about that, and we don't tone down our convictions. We do believe that we need to create space, and we need to engage with people without judgment in terms of giving every individual and every organization the opportunity to come to the table and look at how do we do discourse that's civil, and how do we listen to understand difference and differences of perspective, and how do we move forward in ways that make a difference? I'm someone who believes that waiting for and only supporting the purest of public policies or the purest of social change, as opposed to looking at what can change and how it can move forward, is a mistake. So I don't think that the Affordable Care Act was a perfect solution that completely solved um, the need for better, uh, more equitable health care access in this country. But I believe it was a step in the right direction and something that was worth working on and that can be built upon. So um, from a standpoint of we don't ever feel like we have to tone it down, but we do often feel like we need to support strategies and ideas that move the ball forward and in particular strategies and ideas that can bring unusual allies to the table together to find what we can do together. Huh. That's great. I mean, I'm really just in this conversation so appreciating your ability to navigate extremely difficult topics over a number of different political regimes in your 28-year history running this company, much less if we go all the way back to elementary school for you. Just that you actually have a really natural knack to be able to tell stories that cross political lines and cross lines of different kinds of stakeholders between foundations and governments and different populations that you might be speaking to through some of the communications work your firm does. I think that's pretty unique about you. Is that the most unique thing about you in your business life? Or is there something that you regard as more critical to what you've been able to build? Seeing possibility. Being able to, to really hear the different narratives, the needs, the concerns in an issue area of diverse constituencies, of diverse stakeholders and champions, and to see where's their possibility, where's there a pathway to change, and how can a story be framed that connects people with what they share and care about, what's the underlying value that can get allies together. I do think that is, you know, seeing possibility is what I thrive on. And what I hear from others, they uh, value and what I bring. Yeah, I imagine that sounds right. So what are the things in your leadership that you've learned just get you into trouble? You're not as good at. You repeatedly hear feedback that these are areas of improvement for you, even when you keep working on them essentially your whole career. What are those? So there's, there's a couple that, you know, I, I don't 
keep like an inventory file, but I know what they are because I get that <laughs> feedback loud and clear. Um, and, and, and while I do work on it, I think if you were to talk with colleagues, they would say, yeah, he works on it and he still needs to work on it. Um, so certainly creating space. If I'm in a public meeting, people say, wow, he can really get everybody to talk and everyone to be listened to, et cetera. Uh, when I'm in the, we've got to come up with a creative solution and the idea, and we're under stress and pressure to do it, I can dive right to, hey, let's get to the design and the solution, let's go. Uh, and not always creating the space that's needed to really hear the other voices, uh-huh. and in particular, folks that process really differently. I process quickly, I process verbally, I process with Socratic method of wanting to throw ideas on the wall, including ones I disagree with, and then tear them apart and see what still ends up being a smart design. And that really works for me, but that doesn't work for everybody. And there's people that have very different processes that need to think about something, contemplate it, go away, and then come back and express their idea. And so really needing to constantly remind myself that I've got to pay attention to how people process and ideate and are able to frame argument to come up with the right design and the right strategy solution and really making sure that I'm paying attention to what is the way that works for different people. Are there things that you do, just tricks or techniques that you use to offset this tendency you might have to not afford enough space to other people? You know, when you have good days and bad days, and when I'm on a when I'm on a good day and I'm really being present, I really focus on trying to set context in terms of the structure of how we're going to have the conversation and look at different modes of engagement. So we'll do a you know break people into dyads so that they dialogue with each other and then come back and share out ideas. You know, give everybody blank bumper stickers and say, Hey, everybody, I want, you know, everyone to create their own bumper stickers for your great ideas and let's get them all up on the wall and let's have people present and talk about them before any of us comment back. Um, so when I'm in, in my best space, I'm really looking at creating different modes of engagement so that you get the best out of people who have really different styles. So Eric, a question that we routinely ask on real leaders is whether or not there is a piece of feedback that you've gotten for as long as you can remember and you keep getting another version of it. You talked about this one issue around providing space. Is that the number one piece of feedback or is there something else? No, I, I would say it's probably the number two. Um, you know, the, the number one I get, honestly, is people say is kind of an appreciative feedback of, I know I can 100% count on you. You will go to any lengths to make sure that a project is successful and that people are successful and you are always all in, always a game for the cause. And that is probably the thing I hear the most frequently, followed closely by, and boy, you've got a big personality and need to create more space. <laughs> that makes sense. You must have had some hard days with this company. You're at the whim of lots of different things and funding sources and government decision-making and all sorts of things, given the kinds of issues that you cover. What's gotten you through the tough days over the last 28 years? I am blessed to work with an absolutely amazing group of people who are value-driven, brilliant, creative people. And I have an absolute confidence that when we hit a really difficult, hard, challenging time, that we will come together and we will find 
good solutions together. And that has been the case. I think really, really being clear and sticking with your values. I remember, oh, there was a a, a, a recession when the dot-com bubble burst. And all of a sudden, a bunch, you know, foundation fu- funding went, went down, et cetera. And we had a meeting about, gosh, should we just go after any communication projects we can find? Um, because it's getting really tight and we're pretty challenged. And we said, no, we are really focused. We do social impact work. And maybe we could get lucky and win a project selling shoelaces or high tech or cell phones or something, but we don't know anything about that space. We don't have a track record. So the chances of our winning the work are pretty slim. Maybe we would do a good job with it. Maybe we wouldn't, but we would be off mission and that will impact us down the line. And so in the hard times, we've relied on each other and really the brilliance of a team. And we've relied on really doubling down on our values and doubling down on on where we're focused. And that has seen us through. That's that's just great. I talk a lot in my work about living in your purpose and working in your purpose, and I really see you as just an outstanding example of that. So you and your team. So um, that's just really inspiring to me. Eric, you decided to step away from the CEO role a couple years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah, you know, um, I think this is pretty typical with with founders. Is you reach a point where the company needs leadership in terms of the running of the business that is better at it than you are. And also the company has reached a scale and a size and maybe there's founders who are smarter than I am, but I ended up being both the creative director and the president of the company. And when we were pretty small, I was able to adequately kind of jump from one side to the other of the desk. But it reached a point where a, I felt like I wasn't doing either of them as well as they needed to be done because they each really deserve dedicated, focused attention. And two, the leadership of the company itself, the professional development and and personal growth and human capital investment needed passionate curation and passionate leadership that was as excited and focused on that as I was excited and focused on creating creative social change strategy. You know, I think I barely uh, made that move before the Peter principle would have really bit me in the rear. (laughs) And I was really fortunate. I had a very, very long-term team member who had consistently um, stepped up into greater and greater roles of leadership that was really ready for the next challenge and was a very, very strong second in command and was incredibly gifted and passionate about people development and organizational structure and strategy and systems. And we made a decision that she would be a better president and leader than than I was for that side of the company. And we made a decision to uh, spend a year after deciding it and planning it and announcing it internally to work on figuring out how to make that work well. And so we worked together and had a very careful and slow transition, then also made a real commitment around saying, we're going to hold each other accountable for staying in our new roles. And it's uh, worked really, really well. It's the best, best decision I've ever made. And she would say it's worked really well as well? I believe she would. I mean, you would have to ask her, but that's what she tells me. <laughs> that's true. So are you working less or worrying less about the business? Uh, so there's the big fantasy that the result of this change would be I would travel less mm. uh, because I would no longer be going in to make sure each of our office leads who reported to me had their supervisor spending time with them in their space, et cetera. 
And the irony is I actually travel more because clients said, oh, there's more creative direction available? Fabulous. We want that and we want it here. That little piece of it did, didn't work out. But what I spend my time doing and what I'm spending my focus on is exactly where we wanted it to be, that it's really important personnel and HR and you know making sure that those structures and systems are working in our own place, that's critical or an organization just doesn't work. So I'm not downplaying that, but boy, I like that I'm spending my time worrying about what's the big idea, what's the next strategy, how do we make sure that this organization really gets the advancement and growth they want on their mission, and my travel's really focused around that. So the amount of time has not gone down, but what I'm spending that time doing has changed. And I think it's changed for the better, not just for me, but for the better in terms of what the company needs from me and what the company needed from uh, a leader to run the company, which they now have. That's, that's just great to hear about that. If you have one thing that you would like to learn in the next chapter of your leadership or of your life, one big learning edge, what is it? Well, I'm, I'm really, really focused on what does it mean when organizations commit to equity and commit to being very inclusive and infinitely more diverse and multicultural uh, environments? That means you're actually committing to real change, that your organization will change the way decisions get made, the way meetings occur, the way the culture works really changes. And I think our society overall is grappling with that in a big way. Colleges and universities, who I think are on the cutting edge of really making that commitment and seeing that commitment in action, now have infinitely more diverse campuses. But a more diverse campus does not mean it's a more inclusive and equitable campus. And that change is felt by everybody. The students that are, that are coming in who were underrepresented, the students and faculty who, who uh, were what the organization looked like before. And that's also true in business. And we're about to open a company in another country and another culture. We are blessed to have an increasingly diverse uh, workforce at Metropolitan Group who bring an incredibly rich set of experiences, perspectives, and cultural contexts to the table. And I think it's incumbent on us as leaders and certainly the place that I'm really the most curious and interested on what does that mean in changing in how I need to change my leadership style? And what does that mean in terms of changing how we operate and work and what changes in our culture that doesn't let go of the things that are values and our ideals, but approaches them in ways that are different and more inclusive and that will get us better results. So that I think is a big learning that I've got. And it happens to be a learning I think our society is grappling with. Yeah, I think you're right. And one thing I really appreciate about you and about this conversation is that my judgment of you is that you don't just talk the talk, you really walk the walk. And if you want evidence of the topic that Eric just talked about, go to www.metgroup.com and take a look at his team page because it's one of the most diverse pages for a business that you'll probably ever see. And I feel incredibly grateful for that. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today on Real Leaders. Really appreciate it. Oh, Sue, thank you so much. You're a, a great conversationalist. I wish we had a couple more hours and some good coffee. <laughs> well, as always, Real Leaders is brought to you by Merge Lane, the accelerator and investment fund for startups with at least one female in leadership. Visit us at mergelane.com. 
Thanks for being with us this time. We'll see you next time for the next episode of Real Leaders. And if you have any comments, feedback, or questions, you can always reach me at sue at tellsue.com. Have a great day, everyone.